Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I've got a terrific show planned for you. I think food prices are on the top of everyone's list about their cost of living increases. Yeah, we got the June number down to somewhere like 2.8%, but if you remove the drop in energy, it's more still like 4% plus, 4.4%. Well, you know what? Food is at 9.1%, and it's a problem for a lot of Canadians. It's a very difficult item uh, to come up with enough money. I mean, we're not just talking low income. It's moved right into half of the population. I've also got Martin Peltier with me. He's a senior portfolio manager at Wellington Alta's private council. You are going to like this interview, I'll tell you. Lots of things to talk about. I mean, the tech explosion. Where are we at with the overall economy? What's his biggest worry when he talks about you and about the Canadian uh, economy, Canadian situation. All of that will come with him. Plus, of course, I've got Ozzy. I've got Victor. He's going to talk about this really surprising move in the markets on Tuesday. I'll let him, you know, elaborate on it. But he said, I wonder if that wasn't a bell that maybe we're sniffing a top here. I'll let Vic explain, as I said, but so much more. I've got Michael Levy. We're going to be talking about the latest inflation, latest interest rate moves, all of that stuff coming your way. But first, Delegates came from all over the world to Vancouver last week to discuss the global LNG industry. But both the Prime Minister and Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson couldn't make it. By the way, Mr. Wilkinson actually lives in North Van, so it wasn't a big trip. This is at a time, though, when major LNG deals are absolutely booming. I mean, you have the U.S. LNG exports that are a record high. you got Bloomberg, Bloomberg describes China as aggressively pushing to lock up long-term deals. Shell just signed a 12-year 12 12 year agreement to supply LNG to Morocco. Jijing Energy agreed to a 20-year LNG contract with Mexico Pacific. Indian Oil, the country's largest uh, refiner, has signed a long-term LNG import deal with the United Arab Emirates. I mean, the list goes on, but you won't find Canada's name anywhere. Both Germany and Japan tried to strike billion-dollar long-term deals with Canada. But the federal government refused, instead reiterating their commitment to decarbonization, unequivocally rejecting the opportunity, I think, to play an influential and positive role in both the transition to renewable energy and in helping mitigate the fallout from Russian sanctions. I mean, the prime minister glibly said, hey, there's no business case for LNG exports to Europe from the East Coast. Now, that's despite the fact, by the way, that the EU spent a trillion dollars in the last year, last year and a half, for LNG. Now, to put that in perspective, that's about four times more than the federal and all provinces spend on health care. And the LNG export opportunity hasn't gone unnoticed by the likes of Warren Buffett, for example, because Berkshire Hathaway Energy has agreed to buy Dominion Energy's stake in the Maryland liquefied natural gas export project for about 3.3 billion. I mean, the failure to take advantage of the LNG boom is on top of all the revenue we let go, we forego because of the cancellation of other major energy related projects due to government regulation. And overall, really, it's an inhospitable attitude toward oil and gas. And here's the thing it begs a question for me, and I hope it does for you. Well, we said no to all of that, but what specifically did we get in return? Well, for example, for saying no to natural gas expert opportunities and the cancellation of so many oil and gas related projects. I know there's some exceptions. I mean, you look at Natural Resource Canada says there's 13 West Coast LNG projects have been proposed. But keep in mind, only one LNG Canada and Kitimat is going through. 
with completion in 2025. On the East Coast, while five LNG projects were proposed, none are going through. For the most part, Canada's message to oil and gas has been, no thank you. So I'm simply asking, what did we get for the tens of billions of dollars in lost capital investment, the thousands of lost jobs, the billions lost in government revenue? What did we get? I mean, the context is important. Canada contributes about 1.5% of global emissions, with the entire oil sands something like 15 one-thousandths of a percent. I mean, as Finance Minister Christia Freeland stated in an interview with the Financial Times in January 2020, you hearing this? She said, even if all Canadians ceased emitting carbon, we wouldn't move the dial. So what is this all about? What is the benefit? Because it hasn't been in reduced emissions, by the way. I think that's a straightforward question. It's one that every one of us deals with every day in our lives. Hey, if something's going to cost us money, in this case, big money, or collectively through government actions, isn't the normal thing to do is to ask, what did we get in return? But when it comes to actions to combat climate change, we've been reluctant to ask that straightforward question. I mean, remember, Parliamentary Budget Officer reported that, what, we spent something like $60 billion in green energy projects since 2015, and no cost benefit was done. So you can't determine what we received for the huge tax dollar spent or how effective it was. But when head offices like in Canada moved to the U.S., because what the company said was the negative investment environment for energy companies. You know, according to TMX Group, operator of the Toronto Stock Exchange, the number of listed oil and gas companies with Canadian headquarters fell to 132 at the end of 220. It was 286 and 215. But what did we get in return for the lost jobs, the lost government revenue, all the support and spin-off employment, etc.? I mean, the list just gets so many. I mean, there's so many other examples. Northern Gateway Pipeline was canceled. Uh, Tech canceled their Frontier Project. Trans-Canada Pipe abandoned Energy East after the federal government changed the rules after the application had been made and millions spent. So what did we get? Because I'll tell you, the benefit's not clear for saying no. But we do have some idea of the cost. As University of Calgary's respected economist Jack Mintz wrote in the National Post, if Canada exported just an extra million barrels of oil per day this year, well, it's something like $40 billion to our GDP. And if the LNG Canada project and others were exporting, say, 28 million tons of LNG, well, that's about $25 billion. In other words, look at how much richer Canada would be, more jobs, more tax revenue. And by the way, we would be helping Europeans in their hour of need. No, we said no to money. We said no to capital investment that could have gone to shore up our health care with government revenues, uh, help the vulnerable, put government debt on a more sustainable footing, put the lid on tax increases. I mean, you name it, it's a long list. While opponents of oil and gas have yet to come up with a compelling answer, what we got for foregoing all of that. One more question. Has any country ever paid more and got less in return for virtue signaling.
I'm going to bring Mike Levy in right now. Mike, obviously, inflation was a big story a full week ago, or, or rather, inflation this week. A week ago, we had the Bank of Canada increase, which we've chatted about. But let's start with what the inflation numbers were. I mean, we're talking, I guess everybody's blasting out there that it's 2.8%. But a heck of a lot of that is due to the fact that gasoline prices are so much lower compared to that kind of, you know, out in Vancouver, they were paying $2.50 a litre, you know, around this time last year. So you're comparing with that. That was the big down and the big up mortgage. Hey, hello. <laughs> I don't think the bank, <laughs> I bet the Bank of Canada is not surprised with that one. But yeah, they, we had two really major movers in e- opposite directions, but brought us back to about 2.8. Yeah. And Mike, last week, what we were saying and this was quoting Craig Alexander, who used to be chief economist at TD and very well respected, is that for the impact of interest rate increases takes somewhere between 18 and 24 months to work its way into the inflation and impact it. And uh, we just said to the Bank of Canada, you and I were not saying to the Bank of Canada, but suggesting that maybe they should just take a step back And lo and behold, just what you said, inflation numbers came out and they were 2.8%. And um, that's certainly into the 1.3, 1 to 3% band that the Bank of Canada looks at. But then people were saying, but it was just energy prices coming down. That was the main impactor of, yeah, yeah, the, the main driver. Well, heck, Mike, that was the main driver when interest or or when inflation was going up. That was the huge driver. You just said it at the outset, two and a half dollars a gallon out there in Vancouver. Yeah. What's interesting about it is uh, when you look at those inflation numbers, again, these are such broad measures. That's the first thing I want to say is it's impossible for them to measure uh, the prices in all of rural Canada or up northern Canada. You know, urban centers are much easier. But then again, you can't measure services. So I think a lot of people are going to sit there and go, what do I spend my money on? You know, and we're going to talk to Sylvain Charlebois coming up about food. So we don't need to go into that. You know, he's Canada's foremost expert on food, but we'll leave that for him. But again, depending on what market and what demographic you are, I've been reading some interesting stuff on that. So I, I think that's the challenge here. I mean, the Bank of Canada might r- reply to us when we say, well, inflation's 2.8. They may come back. He said, well, if you removed energy, it was actually four. You know, that kind of thing. And so yeah. they're ob- uh, your point's very well taken. There's a lot of criticism out there that they should have waited further. But I'm just saying that will be their response. We don't feel we have some of these core measures under control. I, there's just so much, so many places to go. But bottom line, you're seeing a lot of people agree with what you were saying a week and a couple of weeks ago, both just saying, hey, can you give it a little bit of a chance? Can you put it on hold and let's see what happens? And well, obviously, they've chosen not to. They chose not to, obviously. And, you know, one of the drivers of inflation is mortgages, mortgage rates. Yeah. Well, heck, man, where do the mortgage rate increases come from? They come from rising interest rates. Who's hiking the interest rates? The Bank of Canada. I mean, the, the, the chartered banks are trying every which way within their mandate to give their clients, their mortgage holders who, who are banking with them, a break. They're they're extending amortization. They're uh, they're they're looking at many different ways to keep from foreclosing on people. But they're driving 
mortgage rates are driving inflation higher, and that's because of higher interest rates. So I think we've got to look at the global picture. Yeah, but your, your point's very well taken, is that, you know, if we're worried about inflation, well, actually, you know what? Canadians aren't worried about inflation. They're worried about cost of living. They're, you know, they don't really care what other numbers we're putting to it. They just know, that, you know, I, I mean, I saw the uh, Angus Reid poll coming out. I guess it was on Thursday it came out showing that basically 60% of Canadians are saying this is going to have a big impact on them. 35% more than a little worried about it. So, but you, so it's a cost of living and you say, well, wait a sec. What's one of the big drivers of my cost of living that's keeping me up at night? My mortgage payment. Who controls it? My mortgage. You know, the other side, just, just one more, Mike, on that. And also, I mean, in that same Angus Reid, I thought this was interesting, found about 10% were happy. And of course, I'm going, of course they are. They were getting like zero or half a percent in their savings account or one-year term deposit. Now they're getting five. But my point is, that's inflationary. You know, putting more money in my pocket, I go out and buy stuff. I feel better about things. So I'm just saying, it's a very complex picture, but we're now starting clearly into areas where you're getting cross currents. You know, your point is the more important one when you say that, you know, my cost of living is going up because my mortgage is. That, I think that's the one that, you know, in a wor- world with record debt, that's the one that's grabbing people. It absolutely is. And I really like your expression, cross-current, because that's yeah. exactly what's going on. Mike, let's just go south of the border for a minute, because the U.S. is set to announce again. And apparently these central banks don't look at what's going on in other areas that are common type areas, Canada, the United States, mm-hmm. the Eurozone. The fact is there's a 99% chance that the Fed is also going to raise interest rates another quarter. And you've got to think, gosh, with what's going on here in Canada and what's going on in parts of Europe, maybe they should be holding back. It's not going to cause any more. I'm sorry, I'm banging my desk. Any more inflation to hold back. It wouldn't have cost the the Bank of Canada any more to hold back. So U.S. following in line and they're going to raise their rates also. Uh, Again, I'm coming back to that other point about, uh, you know, let's keep in mind when the government goes out and spends, you know, deficit spends, so spending a lot more money in the economy, when they bring in a million people in 2022 plus more people this year, that's also inflationary. So the number of cross currents, I mean, I've been feeling for a while that the federal government's actually working against the Bank of Canada, uh, you know, because of, like, for example, it's very clear population increase pushes GDP up, pushes people spending, that kind of stuff. That's inflationary. And you, you start looking around. I, I think it's back to the point we used to make regularly, which is they're a rock and a hard place if you're the Bank of Canada, you know. Uh, I, but I, again, I'll come back to what you were saying last week, which is a lot of economists saying, yes, uh, they don't oversimplify, but they go, you know what, why don't you give it a little longer pause, just a little longer pause. And But maybe they're looking at the housing market and the housing market was doing very well in the second quarter with the rate increases. So they bumped it one more in June. So, I mean, it's all of these things going on that they're juggling. And, and Mike, again, we talked about this last week and I think I want to repeat it. Fiscal policy versus monetary policy. Monetary policy is the Bank of Canada. Fiscal policy is the spending within the country, and the government is so much of that. So you want to know the one of the major drivers, of course you do, one of the major drivers of inflation that's impacting every single Canadian, and particularly our listeners, 
the spending of the government of Canada. It is so ultra inflationary yeah. and they never look in that mirror. They never have that focal. And I'd go one more with that. Keep in mind that raising interest rates was always a blunt tool. They can't, you know, it's a supply side problem also. It's spending in a supply side problem. Well, raising rates doesn't help supply side. It hurts supply side. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, you raise rates, it's not going to impact food. You know, that's not where food lives. It may impact me to buy a house or to develop or something, but it's not going to be on food. No, no. So one last little piece of trivia. We were in the Okanagan in the Asoyus area earlier this week, late last week, earlier this week, and we bought cherries, all right? And we bought them from a roadside stand, but they don't do this for free. Mm -hmm. They have labor costs. And of course, not shipping if, if you're buying near an orchard. And we paid $2.99 a pound for beautiful Okanagan cherries. I'm trying to square that circle and paying $9 a pound at the supermarket. And one other one, $8 a pound at another $7.99. I'm having trouble squaring that circle. Well, you'll enjoy the interview coming up with Stéphane Charlebois talking about food inflation. It's a very complex subject. We'll do more on that coming up on Money Talks. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You know, it's hard not to go to the grocery store and walk out and shake your head every, you know, I mean, it feels like every day or any time you go in there, rather, you're looking at some product. I myself, buy a, I'm on a restricted health-related diet, so I buy the same stuff all the time. And I'm very familiar with prices. And yeah, it's shocking. I remember Mike Levy talking to me a couple of weeks ago saying it was $12 a for a pound of grapes. I think we've all experienced that. Food inflation is the one that's been the most persistent when we get the CPI reports. That's why I'm so pleased to have with me Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He is the director of uh, Canada's foremost uh, research into uh, the whole food issue, the broader food issue, the Dalhousie Agri-Food Laboratory. Uh, Dr. Sherlebaugh, thanks so much for finding time with us. My pleasure, Mike. Let, let me start with this, and I, and I'm, I know you you know you're forced to give information all sorts of places, but I'm going to start with this. You know, when you look at you know food inflation, it isn't a Canada story. I mean, I, I was looking at the United Kingdom because I was over there recently. At what 18 percent in their food inflation? Germany 13.4, uh, France 13 plus. Italy. My point being, of course, that food inflation is everywhere. So I, I f have a little problem with these sort of localized, uh, you know, talk about, well, it's got to be greed. And now I appreciate, by the way, I'm going on and on, but I appreciate that that isn't helped out by the bread fixing price scandal either. But at the same time, it's obviously a bigger issue. Oh, absolutely. It's a global phenomena. And I think the data points to, to, to that argument for sure. Uh, actually, we, we are lucky as Canadians. We actually have uh, still have one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world uh, right after the United States. And so because of that pressure, we are expecting that food inflation rate to, to drop even more as we finish 2023. But uh, you raise a good point, Mike. A lot of people will put uh, food inflation and the bread scandal in the same basket, but there are two different things, I, I believe. Uh, on the one side, with food inflation, you are looking at an industry coping with very volatile market conditions. On the other hand, you're looking at companies breaking the law 
And, uh, and, and really, that's a non-starter for everyone, I think, in Canada. Or it should be a non-starter for everyone in Canada. We shouldn't tolerate companies breaking the law. And I actually do believe that we're too soft on companies breaking the law. As we look at the United States, some executive has actually gone to jail uh, fixing salmon prices, for example, just a few years ago. That was a really famous case. And here in Canada, we actually... Uh, provide some executives with immunity uh, that actually allows them to continue. And so this is really troubling. And and if we want more competition in this country, we actually have to get our act together when it comes to crimes. Uh, a company like Little and Aldi wouldn't be interested in Canada if we actually allow price fixings to occur. And I actually do believe, despite the fact that I believe that greedflation is a mirage, it's a false argument, I actually do believe that the food industry has a price fixing culture problem. We, we've just thinking of competition. We've had a couple of reports out looking into grocery prices. I mean, this has been an issue, you know, uh, you know, number one issue for many Canadians for over a year and a half at this point. What did they find? Can you sum up what, you know, full-scale investigations into the grocery industry, grocery pricing, what did they find? Uh, you know, I, I know it's a big question, but if you can sum it up for us so people can walk away at least and say, these people spent the time on it and they, they said X should happen or did happen. Well, so we have to go back to uh, 2001, if you can believe it. So for uh, allegedly for 14 years, uh, seven companies actually colluded uh, fixing prices uh, in the bakery section, essentially. Uh, and so you have seven companies. Of the of those seven companies, we not, we had two companies come forward back in 2015. Uh, so 14 years after to the Competition Bureau, that's when they receive immunity. And those two companies were Loblaws and and uh, Western Bakeries. Uh, that was in 2015. For two years, the investigation was ongoing without other parties knowing about it. In 2017, Loblaws came out in December, basically telling all Canadians that this was going on for 14 years and they threw everyone else under the bus. And, uh, and that would be uh, Giant Tiger, Walmart, Metro, uh, and uh, Empire. Uh, those are the, and of course, uh, the other uh, bakery is Canada Bread, which, uh, by the way, just admitted guilt just a few weeks ago. But that was under a, a different uh, ownership. It was Maple Leaf Foods, which owned Canada Bread for 14 years. And so, Grupo, uh, Grupo Bimbo, which is out of Mexico, owns Canada Bread. They admitted guilt, paid $50 million uh, as a fine. And and now what we're wondering is whether or not Maple Leaf Foods, which is a giant in the meat sector, whether or not uh, there's some price fixing going on in that section of the grocery store as well. Because there was an email that was actually released by the Globe and Mail showing, an email written by Michael McCain himself, showing that it is possible, it is quite possible that other sections of the grocery store may have, may have been affected by this price-fixing culture. 
Okay, so let's let's go to today. As you say, that's not the same as what's driving some of these uh, price increases that we're all experiencing at this point. And I'll give just a couple of quick examples. One is, you know, the Russian grain deal is over right now. Well, I think consumers can expect it took a, a, a you know off the top of my head, it took a couple of days to ripple through to some of the commodity markets, but it looks like it has. And you know, that's not good news if we're looking for uh, you know lower prices. Uh, you know, if we're going to have higher wheat prices or corn, and of course then we have feed for cattle that pushing meat prices up you know it's not a good news story at all no i must say i was a bit surprised uh early in the week uh, on monday when the deal ended i was actually expecting commodity prices to skyrocket it didn't happen so uh to me uh markets uh were telling me two things either uh the end of the deal was already priced in or or Perhaps there's something else going on uh, on the side that perhaps would allow Ukraine to uh, export grains regardless. And of course, uh, the Black Sea is a big, big deal, but you can also export by train. And unfortunately and regrettably, uh, Ukrainians agriculture is not what it used to be because of the invasion. A year and a half ago, uh, the Ukrainian agriculture was able to feed 400 million people. Now today, uh, when you look at, say, wheat and corn exports, so Ukrainian, Ukraine is actually responsible for about 10% of global corn exports and about 5% of global wheat exports. So it's not, those numbers are, are much lower than what, what they used to be. However, uh, those numbers are still significant. And, and, and now we've seen two nights of bombing 60,000 tons of grains were destroyed as a result. And I think markets are reacting to that specifically. Mm. And that's why corn futures are up 10% and wheat futures are up 15% right now. And that could actually impact us eventually. Uh, let me go to the other thing we alluded to earlier, which is, uh, you know, the wage increase. I mean, we've seen it across the board. doesn't matter where we're looking. And, of course, it's understandable that people's standard of living is falling, you know, as their prices escape them. But what impact will that have? I mean, you're seeing several, you know, major grocers having to pay more or there's been labor disputes over wages. Won't that ripple through to higher prices at some point? This is the most surprising thing uh, over the last 18 months. Uh, One would think that because of food inflation, people are actually spending more at the grocery store. That is not the case. Uh, At least that's not what the data is telling us. What the data is telling us is that Canadians are actually spending less at the grocery store right now. And, And the reason is pretty simple. Everyone who would have a mortgage on a variable rate or have renewed their mortgage recently uh, or anyone renting uh, and would have moved recently, they're probably paying more to make sure they keep a roof over their heads. And those are two competing necessities of life, shelter and food. And and which one is easier to trade down with? Food, for sure. You can actually show up at the grocery store and buy cheaper brands. With shelter, you would have to move or get someone else to move in with you uh, or, or downgrade. It's much more work, much more work than with food. And that's why I think right now Canadians are retreating with their wallets. They're, show, they're still showing up at the grocery store or a store because dollar store sales have actually gone up 15%. They're actually saving to make sure they have some sort of shelter for, for them. 
When you look at individuals, and you have posted this, and I'll just remind people to go to The Food Professor uh, on Twitter, The Food Professor. Uh, you know, I'm looking at some of these things you put up, and I certainly, uh, you know, jaw-dropping when you look at since just January, you've got pork shoulder cuts up uh, 92%, grapes up 42%, as I was alluding to earlier, you know, or squash or orange juice, uh, you know, and everyone can throw in their examples because they'll have personal shopping habits. And it seems even higher than some sort of, uh, what, the latest 9.1%, you know, June inflation uh, for grocery prices. I mean, it seems much greater than that, at least. And it looks like it's uh, meat and vegetables are the culprits here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when you look at the CPI report, uh, there's always a new store every month. Uh, a few months ago, uh, bakery and vegetables were pushing our food inflation rate higher. Now, it's, now culprits are fruits and, and meat products. The meat story was actually highly predictable because uh, back in March, if you remember, Mike, I was actually on Twitter saying to people, buy beef now. Yeah. <laughs> buy beef now because beef will be more expensive later. Well, that's what we're at. We're, we're later now. And that's why beef prices are really making the meat counter more expensive. And we don't see that changing anytime soon, unfortunately. So if you're a meat lover, you know, pork is probably a better bet for you. Or chicken actually is more stable than it used to about six months ago. With fruits, fruits is a hard one to explain. Uh, I actually do think that uh, some, some of it has to do with, uh, with droughts all over the place. It's been harder to grow. Uh, even in Canada, in June, you start to get fruits from uh, domestic farmers. But let's face it, farmers will charge a premium at the very beginning of the season. So I suspect that really uh, grocers and farmers wanted to uh, get consumers to pay a premium early on in the season. And and who knows what's going to happen in July and August, but that's probably why it happened. Because typically with fruits, the currency is a big deal. The currency could drive that section of the grocery store higher in terms of prices. But the currency has been a non-issue for a very long time now. Uh, what a great point you've just made, though, that you know when we're looking at these, I think people get too simplistic uh, when they start looking at why are grocery prices higher. And uh, as you just alluded to, you know, a cur the currency can play a big part in that also. I mean, because commodities are traded in U.S. dollars, you know, major commodities are, besides domestic issues like higher wages. Uh, and I don't know, uh, you tell me, does the greedflation uh, people who are proponents of that, do they include uh, wage increases for their workers who obviously are facing the same constraints the rest of us are? The the reality, Mike, is that there's a new baseline out there when it comes to cost management in the food industry. It's costing more to do anything in the food business right now, anything. Uh, wages have gone up. Packaging costs have gone up. You know, consumers are pretty demanding when it comes to safety, food safety. And so regulations have actually made things more expensive. And I, I think all of these changes have been, uh, to a large extent, underappreciated economically. And so those are pressures that have to be managed by food companies. And at the end of the day, consumers are saying, well, you know, Galen Weston or grocers in general are responsible for inflation. And, and that, that is too much of a simplistic argument in my view.
let's come to a, a couple of things within that. Um, as I say, we've had the Competition Bureau look into grocery prices. They didn't come back with the greedflation story. Uh, you know, but if you had a magic wand and you said, here's some things that we could do to, you know, create a, you know, it's not to do that will have an impact tomorrow morning or next week. I think there's some things consumers can do. We'll talk about that because you've written about it. But, you know, broadly speaking, uh, I know that you have written about the lack of competition within the grocery sector itself, you know, that we don't have enough stores involved. We don't have enough people battling for our dollars. Uh, is that, would that be your number one thing, sort of, if you could change the landscape? My, my, my number one concern when it comes to competition, is the fact that Canada remains a highly unattractive market to invest in. It's a, it's a complicated market. When you look at it, you have 10 provinces uh, using different regulations. Uh, our, our fiscal policies are very, very heavy uh, when it comes to taxing this and taxing that. Uh, there's lots going on here. So for a national player to uh, to be successful is very difficult. Talk to Target. I mean, Target will tell you it's very yeah. difficult. They actually came in and left. We lost Lowe's. We lost Sears. Nordstrom just recently. It's really tough. Walmart, when they came into the game market back in 1994, after buying Walco, they didn't open up 400 stores. They opened up about 20 stores and progressively learn about the game market. And they did very well, and they're still doing very well. Same for Costco. And so I, I think it's important to recognize that interprovincial barriers, fiscal policies are just not making Canada an attractive place to invest in. So that's one thing we need to recognize. Secondly, it's the discipline within the food industry. Let's face it, there are a couple of players who do really control uh rules in general. Talk to any food manufacturers, they'll tell you. I mean, it boils down to Loblaws and Walmart. They have a lot of influence. If you, you, you either make it or break it in the food industry, uh, depending on how you do with Loblaws and Walmart. And that needs to change a little bit. And that's why the Code of Conduct, I think, is a key uh, initiative that could actually help. It would discipline the market. And for you and I, Mike, as consumers, what would happen over time is that we would actually see more options, uh, more variety at the grocery store, and, of course, more competition. And I'm not thinking about urban centers. Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, they're doing just fine. It's, I'm talking about rural economies, rural communities, uh, where they've seen one grocery store close or that we've seen many, uh, many banners basically eliminating options by buying land and and making sure that there are no more options for say 10 to 15,000 people and that tend to actually raise prices unfortunately so those are the markets that we need to look into in the United States Kroger is trying to buy Albertsons and let me tell you Congress is very granular about how this merger could impact competition in the United States. They're actually looking at, say, you know, New Haven, Connecticut, and they're trying to figure out whether or not consumers there will be impacted negatively or positively by seeing one less player in the market. So that's kind of the approach that the Bureau should 
should take for the future. Uh, your point about and making a distinction between the urban centers and the rural centers, I, I just think is key and you don't hear it. You know why? Because I think the major news outlets are centered in the urban centers and their own personal experience there. And uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I only have anecdotal evidence because we don't get a breakdown from StatsCan, for example, on the different, you know, those kind of geographical changes. But boy, anecdotally, uh, I've got friends living in small centers. Uh, you know, I know some people in Calgary in a small, you know, a couple of smaller towns. It, you're, I, I don't think I can emphasize enough what you're, you've just said. That they're getting well, killed Mike, as consumers. I mean, case on point. I mean, where's so we we've done the work as a lab in terms yes. of where which city actually offers the most expensive food basket in the country. The number one market is close to you. It's Victoria, BC. Why? It's an <laughs> island. It's an <laughs> island. Number two, Halifax. Why? Because Halifax is far away from everything. Yeah. And so that those are the realities that I think we need to appreciate uh, and, and making sure that some of these markets do have more competition. Well, and it's, it's, it's a, a very important view, but it's more nuanced. I mean, I got the impression, as I said, that the people pushing the greedflation, they want that to be true. They want it to be that simple, you know, for whether it's satisfying some ideological approach that they have or ideological need, but they want it to be. And my worry about that, when you focus on the wrong variable, you're not going to make progress. You know, we're not going to have an improve, as you say, prices can drop for other reasons, but it is such a complicated market, whether we're talking commodities and that talks currency, whether we're talking the lack of competition and is your distinction, you know, urban, rural, it's a huge list. I mean, this isn't a simple thing. And as I started with, look at it across the world, look at it across the Western world. I mean, boy, in Canada, that 9.1% in June looks awful good to somebody sitting in the UK at 18.3%. That's right. You know, the greedflation campaign has been has largely been successful for one simple reason. Many Canadians have forgotten why companies exist in the first place. Companies exist to make a profit, to support everything we see in our economy, schools, roads, hospitals, everything. It creates wealth. We have lots of wealth in Canada due to companies. Yeah. Uh, but it, it seems as though a lot of Canadians have actually forgotten about that and and profiteering or making a profit uh, seems uh, by some uh, appears to be almost uh, s s devilish uh, or shouldn't be allowed. And, and in my view, it's, it's really unfortunate that we've come this far. I, it, there's always been a delicate balance between profits and food business, like being in the food business, the morality of making money has always been there for sure. Whether or not the food inflation rate is at 0% or 10%, doesn't matter. It's always been there. Uh, and now it's much more obvious because the food inflation rate is so high. Yeah. And I mean, that's my life here on Money Talks is to try and explain these relationships. Like you don't want profitable corporations or you want to raise taxes. Have you looked at your pension holdings yet? Have you looked at your, you know, Canada pension holdings? Can you describe to me how we're better off without a profitable corporate sector? When I'm talking about, as you just did, healthcare, education, everything that we sort of put in that big basket of social uh, contract with the governments. I, I mean, yeah, it's astounding. But that's back to my point when you're dealing with ideological. 
uh, reality. Every, every day, Mike, I, I, every day, Mike, I actually get people sending me emails, pictures of similar products being sold on the same street, the same city, the same day, two different prices. And I'm going, wow, this person absolutely does not understand uh, food economics and strategy and business. I mean, do you want ham to be sold the same price everywhere in Canada? If that's the case, we don't want the same economy. Uh, let's very quickly, because I, I, I know your time's short, but and I appreciate you finding the time for us. Uh, you just reminded me, I have on a big note here, shrinkflation. Now, StatsCan says they, they look at it. Uh, again, haven't we all experienced, you know, I'm looking, at, I'm looking at a beverage and going, is that a thimbleful or two thimbles full, you know, for the same price? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, Those two bite sizes are now one bite, yeah, for sure. Or very small jaws, you know. And I, I, I appreciate <laughs> it would be very difficult for StatsCan to measure that, but we should also understand the difficulty in measuring that again, suggest that maybe that food inflation rate's a little higher than they're reporting. I'm concerned, you know, because uh, really uh, I think there's something going on there because, uh, uh, as you know, Mike, a lot of social programs from Canada will use the CPI mm-hmm. as, as a measure to support people who do need the support. Yep. And uh, if food inflation is uh, underestimated in Canada because that scan doesn't really recognize the influence of shrinkflation, uh, it means a lot of Canadians that don't get the support they need. And that's really a big problem yep. to me. The other issue, of course, is transparency. I've always actually believed that shrinkflation is fair game yes. in, an, in, a, in an economy like ours. I mean, it's, it's business. Why would you actually want to increase the price of your product, uh, and lose market share. It's a strategy. Yeah. And let's actually recognize sh- shrinkflation as such. However, I've always believed that the food industry sees shrinkflation as a taboo subject. And I think we're beyond that because of social media and people taking pictures all the time. Yeah. I think companies need to be honest. Uh, I know a reporter I was talking to earlier this week was telling me that, uh, he spoke, he connected with 53 companies uh, which have shrinkflated some products. Only 11 uh, got back to him. 11. It means a lot of companies are avoiding the issue and yes. they shouldn't. Uh, just one cl- last quick thing. Individuals, though, what can individuals do in terms of, I mean, is it as simple as just saying, why don't you shop and make sure you've reviewed what's available grocery-wise, even if it's a limited selection of competition? And as you said, in the rural area, this may not be possible. But shop yeah. and compare and, and look for, I mean, I find myself looking for specials all the time. You know, when I find a special, I go for it. <laughs> you know, is, it, is, oh, yeah. is there more than that or is that pretty much what we should be focused on? Oh, it's, it's very much about that. I was actually visiting a, a food bank uh, here in Montreal uh, today, and uh, they're getting less food. Why? Because people are more careful. Yeah. Uh, they're buying those Enjoy Tonight deals. There's less waste. So inflation is not all bad. I know it's very difficult for a lot of people, but we actually believe we're wasting less food. And so I certainly would encourage people to look for those deals. If you're not, if food safety, I mean, food safety, the food safety culture in Canada is very strong, but 
there are really good deals out there if you really look for them. Consumers have more power than they think. Um, feeling, feeling that you're at the mercy of a massive industry, I think, is the wrong mindset to have right now. You are in control. If there is a product that you think is too expensive, just walk away. There's probably another substitute in that same store that is going to be affordable for you and it's going to fit your budget as well. So don't feel vulnerable. You do have a lot of power, regardless if you have access to one store, three stores, or 10 stores. It doesn't matter. Well, as they say, there's so much to talk about in this topic. And as you're saying that, I've got a million more questions, but I want to respect your time. And I just want, I also want to invite people to go to the Food Professor. So it's easy, at Food Professor, uh, you know, on Twitter, for example, uh, there's so many other things, uh, podcasts. There's, uh, of course, being the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University keeps you busy. And I'll leave with one positive note with you because you've already put out the forecast, uh, gosh, months ago, seven, eight months ago, saying we will still edge further lower as we get into the end of the year. We're not going to get to where people want to be, but we are at least on the right track in terms of edging lower. So just remind people what your forecast is for the end of this year for food, you know, food inflation. Yeah. So in December, we actually published a Canada's food price report along with the University of Guelph, the University of Saskatchewan and uh, UBC. And uh, uh, our forecast was that we would land, we would actually end the year with a food inflation rate of anywhere between 5 to 7%. And, uh, and we're still very comfortable with that forecast. Well, that would be good news, at least better news. Let's call it better news that the, the rate of increase in the prices we pay at the store will at least slow down a little bit. Sylvain Charlebois, director, of course, uh, at Dalhousie Agri-Food Lab. Thanks so much for finding time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to getting a chance to talk to Martin uh, Peltier. He's a senior portfolio manager at Wellington Altus Private Council. Martin, appreciate you taking the time. And, and I got to say this up front. Uh, people can find you on Twitter, Martin Peltier, of course. Uh, but man, I love the stuff you put out there. It's, it's uh, such a great perspective from a long career, first as an analyst and now as an advisor and that kind of stuff. So I, I just think it's sorely missed in this economy or in this kind of environment that we're dealing with. So let me just start with the, the Barbara Walters in me and ask you, what worries you most for individuals in the environment we're in? Um. I think people are, they've got, they have their head in the sand about the state of the broader economy and the consequences of that and their exposure from a risk standpoint, um, thinking that we're going to go back to the way things were pre-COVID and COVID was a structural change. And whenever there's a big structural shift or a structural change, uh, we don't go back to the way things were. And so maybe it's a hybrid or maybe, you know, it's something that looks a little bit like it was before, um, but we really don't know. And so that means with that heightened level of uncertainty, you have to take a look at um, what areas that you are potentially exposed, and what areas that your kids are potentially exposed and start to plan accordingly. And uh, the best time to buy insurance is when it's cheap and, and you're healthy and <laughs> and things are good um and things are still not too bad and so you know why not add a little bit of insurance into your life 
um, by by changing a few things. What about exposure right now? I mean, obviously, at least I'm worried about global debt, country debt, individual debt, you know, and obviously when we've had this big bounce in interest rates, you know, uh, we've seen it play out in things like uh, banks' treasury portfolios are, you know, are, are dramatically declined, whether it's in the UK pension funds or, you know, more recently with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. You know, it's a similar story. Are you worried about further disruptions that way into the broad-based economy, that we're not over the sort of financial crunch of this sharp rise in interest rates? Um, I, I think that um, it was overplayed back in March of, of this year um, because there was a few bad apples. Now, having said that, there were very large bad apples. And so Silicon Valley Bank, for example, is a very large bank, and uh, they behaved badly by unhedging their uh, long-duration exposure. And uh, there are those saying that we're going to, you know, that's not going to be a problem down the road. And that wouldn't have been a problem if, if the fear factors weren't, weren't there and people hadn't hit the, uh, the withdrawal button on their iPhones, uh, which is a lot quicker than lining up at the bank itself. Um, yes, there are some problems. And there always have been pockets of, of various parts of the economy and the corporate world that are behaving badly. And those who overextended themselves into a rising rate environment are paying the consequences of that. And so, yeah, there's going to be areas uh, and dislocations. But for the most part, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually, you look at this, the state of, of just demographics and the amount of wealth that's been generated over the last uh, 15 years from quantitative easing and money printing, especially in the U.S., I, I think there's like, I don't know how much, there's trillions of dollars of money and wealth created in, in the U.S. Um, among baby boomers, and they're starting to spend that. And so for the most part, I think what's going to happen is we're going to see um, a widening of the gap between the wealthy and the poor, and uh, that's going to destabilize political systems. And we already are seeing that. You know, you've got uh, on one end of the spectrum, you've got the extreme right with, in the U.S. with Donald Trump. And then you, actually, surprisingly, you have the extreme left with Biden and, 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 and for, for a capitalist type of, of economy. And you see that in Canada as well, too, with uh, the NDPs and the Liberals almost uh, aligned perfectly in, in their philosophies and approach. And then on the other side, you have the Conservatives uh, that, you know, some may say are kowtowing towards the, the right side of things. And so um, you, you have that dislocation. And so the wealthier uh, people are kind of in the middle uh, of that spectrum and the poor people are, are looking at the extremes because the status quo isn't working. Yeah, I've never, you know, and again, it's strictly my opinion, but I've never seen a bigger distinction that way. Uh, you know, and COVID certainly exemplified it. It used to drive me nuts when they said, we're all in this together, when I said, I'm certainly not. You know, I'm choosing which house to live in. You know, uh, you know I'm fortunate to have that opportunity, to have a choice. You know, I'm not yeah. sitting in a one-bedroom apartment with a, with a child or two children with school closed yeah. or playgrounds closed. It was just, and, and I wasn't worried about a paycheck. You know, yeah. and there was that level of uncertainty. But I think that there really was a laptop class making some decisions and there really was a group. And I continue to see ignoring, uh, you know, even even today uh, when we have the finance minister, Christia Freeland, sort of celebrating that mm -hmm. inflation's down to 2.8 percent when 
you know, certainly everybody's wandering around going, which is only up 2.8? I'm trying to find something. You know, my mortgage payment's up 30%. My food's up 9.1. I'm trying to find something that's only up 2.8. And again, who does that hurt? We know that it's moved up the income scale. It's not just the lowest quintile. Now we're into about 50% of Canadians. But I just don't see how, you know, it just seemed to me it was insensitive to the struggles that some Canadians have been going through, continue to go through, because, you know, while my inflate, my rate of increase in costs may be slowing down, which it is, but certainly I'm still paying a big number. <laughs> you know, my cost of living is difficult. So, yeah, so, I just yeah. think that distinction you've made is very important and, and one I've never seen it to this degree in Canada anyways. And, and so a couple of things from that, you bring up some really good points. Um, first of all, looking at the inflation side of things, and we can have a separate discussion, but yeah. you know, there's the baseline effect. And so um, we had some pretty high levels of inflation uh, from a year ago. And so as that becomes uh, further, as we move further and further along in the months to come, it's going to be very challenging to, uh, to see the same kind of level of inflation and we'll actually start to see it go up again. And I, I don't think people realize that. But more so in regards to what you're talking about, um, about in regards to the 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 disconnect between politicians and the people, what happened was with COVID, um, the federal government, in my opinion, has been aggressively attacking small business. It came out of the shoots, calling small business tax cheats and oh, yeah. everything else, and and they've rapidly grown the public uh, civil service by forty percent, and no one out of the government's done the same. And then uh, from COVID, uh, it, it was used, in my opinion, used as a means to, hey, we're the government, we'll take care of you, we'll help you through that. Um, but that kind of philosophy has been carried past now that we've gone through uh, the, the worst of it, potentially, hopefully, with, with COVID. That same philosophy is like, well, um, we're going to continue to help taking care of you and implement social policies to do that. Um, and so you have to justify uh, the results of what you've done so far. So you have to go and cherry pick and say, well, hey, look, we told you we're going to deal with inflation. And we've dealt with it. When in reality, they, they haven't, they may have actually made the situation worse <laughs> um, by forcing to make a Canada raise rates and, and, and running record levels of immigration when there just isn't the, uh, the housing, the health care and uh, the, uh, the policing and the education to support it. Um, and they're leaving it to municipalities. Well, it's the municipality's fault or the provincial's fault. It's not us. And so um, instead of, hey, let's work together. We have a problem with, with, uh, uh, with productivity um, in this country, a serious problem. Uh, let's try and find ways to boost productivity. Let's find, find ways to invest in uh, research and development. Let's find, find, try and find ways to increase uh, self-employment, which happened in the U.S. Uh, coming out of COVID. That's why they're stronger than we are from an economic standpoint. And then uh, those corporations will end up hiring more people, and then you can grow your way out of that problem because all of a sudden now you have a lot of jobs um, that are available for the immig immigration coming in, more people building houses, the economy is going that way instead of, hey, let, let's socially con uh, construct it ourselves by uh, by giving you the money to deal with it. And that just never works out. 
one of the observations I've made, and again, it's, it's just simply anecdotal in myself, is that we have a bigger choice right now in government than I recall. It used to be that, you know, there was sort of overlap, conservative, liberal kind of thing. And now they've gone different directions with clearly to me, it's climate change is the priority, not economic growth, not productivity changes, not capital investment. And that'll be a choice that Canadians have to make, you know, which yeah. is which side do they want? But you, you mentioned about the productivity, and that's a great example of, you know, something I, I sit there and kind of, hey, we've got a problem here. It uh, doesn't seem like much of the public is there, and I don't think it's a priority for government. I, I, I see no sign that it's been a priority for government. Um, yeah, and, and so if you look at, at – at, there was a recent poll that came out, I believe, that they believe the government is not following through on, on what most Canadians want. And, and and so, uh, but again, it comes down to uh, this this mindset by the existing government that we know better than you. If it, a, a great example was, I remember when um, the the city uh, took too much of my property taxes. This is a number of years ago, and mm -hmm. they overbuilt everybody. And there was a huge argument as to whether they should give that money back or not. And and it was back to that beer and popcorn. And yes. if I give the money back, they're going to spend it on beer and popcorn. Well, do you know what? That's my damn money. I'm sorry yep. for swearing, but that is my money. If I want to spend it on popcorn um, and, and movies and, and beer, which I don't drink, but if I did want to, um, I'll do it. It's my money. And so give it back. And there's that kind of mentality that we know better and uh, we're going to drive policy. So climate change, you don't realize it, but climate change does take a bigger priority than feeding your family, for example, because um, we'll feed your family. Don't worry, you can trust mm -hmm. us. Um, when in reality, you know, you have 3,000 people line up in, in Northeast Calgary for fresh vegetables. Um, I mean, this is crazy. You go to East, you go to, you go to Vancouver and parts of the city are completely filled with tent cities or Nanaimo. Um, we have a, 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 serious, a serious crisis here. Uh, you look at, I'm a big proponent of mental health. Um, mental health, um, is, is is at epic proportions following uh, the lockdowns and among children. I mean, these are things that, um, you know, you're even seeing at a municipal level where a, a new mayor declared a climate change emergency when um, the biggest thing she can influence is housing and, and removing regulations and building more houses and, and helping people get off the streets. I mean, it just seems to be that, that really dislocation between the, the needs. Now, Having said all of that, absolutely, we have to do something to deal with uh, the worsening environment and, and, and warming temperatures. Absolutely. Uh, but we also have to weigh that against, um, you know, the, the average person being able to feed their family or get a job um, or actually buy a car. And uh, how do we do that? Uh, it's funny, we've got another example this week with Olivia Chow, the newly elected mayor of Toronto. It's one of the first things she did is ban leaf blowers. Now, I'm not sure, sure where that is on the list of priorities for uh, the public there. They have similar challenges as we do across the country, especially on the housing front, which uh, I, I've said many times now. I think the housing problem that we are about to experience now, Calgary's better, you know, I mean, not to the same anywhere near the degree that Vancouver or Toronto or Hamilton has been experiencing Montreal. I, I just think it's going to blow people away. The rental crisis coming. You know, yep. we've been talking about you can't bring in a million people. Actually, the plan is to bring two million people in plus in three years. Yeah. And, well, and we already have a shortage of rental. You know, we know people, that. 
people are leaving. And I had a coffee with a really good friend of mine that's doing a development down in Costa Rica. And the quality of life, the social context and everything else is, is that much better. So, and, and it's being flooded with Canadians. And those are tax dollars that are leaving, right? And that's capital that could be deployed. I want to mention something. And I saw a tweet. It was really interesting. And I think this is something that government's missing. Um, it, and and there, there was a recent some problems with government looking at phasing out oil and gas and the perception of that and what does that mean. But um, I read today the other day that in 2022, Suncor alone spent $3.1 billion on indigenous procurement, a whopping 20% of the overall spend. By comparison, the entire federal government spent $1.5 billion from 1996 to 2018 through their Aboriginal procurement strategy well under one percent so if you really want to have an impact right on on areas of of the economy and areas of your civilization that is struggling that could use it um why not support business why not allow business to grow and expand and have them partner with uh with those areas to help solve some of those problems you might be surprised with what happens one year um, they were able to double the size of what they spent from 1996 to 2018. Um, look at the impact that's having. Uh, let me go further with oil just for a second and bring it down to the individual level, but the broader level there. Uh, my editorial earlier on was just talking about what did we get in return for saying no to natural gas uh, to the degree. I know there's exceptions, but you know, saying there's no business case on the East Coast and the Americans jump in 10 minutes later with record LNG sales to, to Europe, that Europe buys a trillion dollars worth of LNG. You know, I, I thought that was pretty good money on my, you know, but I, I'm just wondering what, what the prospects, I look at a disconnect right now between the oil market and the paper oil market, you know, the commodity trading market. Uh, are you bullish on oil's prospects or are you standing aside or what do you think? I'm talking now as an, an investor. Um, I have never been more bullish in my career. Um, and I ran through the, the bull run from 2000 through to 2014 when OPEC, yeah. um, you know, threw a wrench into the whole thing. Um, and the, the reason why I'm, I'm very, very bullish um, and I'm not a perma bull. Um, I run a, a neutral strategy so I can go zero weight if I wanted to. And we were, we went to almost zero weight following 2014. Um, and we came back in only two years ago and we're really overweight. Uh, the reason being is um, there's been an attack uh, by uh, environmentalists and governments on the supply side globally. Um, and, and, and so that's going to put uh, at, at risk um, any sort of uh, growth in demand or uh, underestimated growth in demand, and which is, you know, the, there's a quite the pervasive view that we're going to see peak demand um, on, on, on oil. And, and that's just not going to happen anytime soon, in, in our opinion. Uh, you just can't scale out um, renewables to the point that it can be disruptive. And what I mean by scale is you need to disrupt by two things, cost and convenience. Um, you need to make life a heck of a lot more convenient for people and you need to make it more uh, uh, cheaper. And that's how you scale. And uh, renewables do neither of those. Now I'm not saying we should ignore that. Um, you know, when these renewables, uh, if you look at the project economics, they only worked for a lot of, a lot of them uh, when interest rates were really low 
But let's just say inflation stays high and the cost of capital is at four or five percent. The economics don't work without government subsidies. Um, and so you can't scale and, and you can definitely not going to be able to scale government subsidies. So I'm going with that is there's not going to be the demand impact as much as what uh, I think many are expecting. And there's going to be a greater supply impact um, with uh, with with more than what uh, people are expecting. And so there, that dislocation, all it takes is a couple, uh, one or two million barrels a day to, to set the margin. And so the fundamentals will eventually catch up. Um, people aren't counting barrels right now, um, but eventually you'll have to. And when that happens, you'll see a nice pop. And, uh, and so we're positioned for that. And I would think that uh, position in Canada as part of it. I mean, I'm just looking again at our discount, our Canadian dollar. Dis- well, there's an oil discount too, but the Canadian dollar discount, uh, you know, there that uh, the valuations aren't there at all. You know, we're not paying even average prices, I guess I'd say. You know, well, it looks like the cash flow is huge. Look at it this way. We get paid in U.S. dollars or these companies. You sell. Mm-hmm. So um, the oil price equivalent Right now, the U.S. dollar is starting to, to come down. The Canadian dollar is going up a little bit, but for the most part, uh, back in the 2000s, the dollar was on par, um, and our cost structure is in Canadian dollars. And so, we're actually making more money than we did uh, during the previous run, and uh, we're only getting tiny multiples on that because people think that oil prices are going to fall back to 30 or 40 dollars a barrel, um, and very few are running forecasts. Uh, at the curve or above the curve, and uh, and and so when people have that that realization that maybe these prices are going to stay stick around, um, there could be a multiple expansion um, as people want to get access to that cash flow, and uh, and so I think that's the position that you want to have. And you know what? Um, as I mentioned to you at the beginning of our conversation, uh, you want to have some inflation insurance in your portfolio and in your life, and right now it's cheap. So why don't you have a little bit of inflation protection and add a little bit of energy? You don't have to go um, everything all in <laughs> um, like uh, so many on Twitter uh, that, that will tout the energy trade. But, um, you know, adding a small slice, I mean, the S&P is only like 4% or five, not even 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, going up to 10 is probably not a bad idea. Um, just staying with the broader market, I, I know this is, again, a, it's the broad question, but you look at this market, look at the valuations. What's driving this market, do you think, that we should be aware of? So I wrote a piece in my Financial Post column about it um, recently, and I talk about what's really driving uh, the markets, in particular the U.S. market and the U.S. dollar. And, and if you take a look at the correlation between Fed liquidity and the Fed's balance sheet, and the S&P 500, it's running about 84%. So 84% of variability of the S&P can be explained by Fed liquidity. And so everyone's looking at AI, they're looking at, uh, mm-hmm. at, at cryptos, all of these sorts of technologies. The bottom line is it comes down to Fed liquidity. And you can see that in March uh, when the Fed re- started to reinject uh, uh, money back into the, into the system. Uh, with the concerns over the banking situation at that time, and the, the stock spiked. Now, um, more so right now, you have the stocks have completely removed themselves from uh, this Fed balance sheet is starting to tight, that's start retightened again. And so either uh, the, the stocks are, are too high, or the Fed's going to do easing again. 
And I don't know about you, but the economy is looking pretty strong in the U.S. So why would they start cutting rates? Mm -hmm. I know inflation's coming down. Um, well, what would cause them to cut rates? And um, if you look at it, anytime they start cutting rates, it means that there's something not good in the economy, and uh, it's probably not a good time to own stocks. And so um, I, I, I am a little bit leery about uh, some of the some of the stocks trading at really, really, really high multiples. Now, having said that, there is a whole swath of other areas of the market that are not uh, reflecting that kind of scenario. I think that's a key point for people to focus on because, of course, you get sort of celebrity stocks, you yeah. know, whether it's the fangs, you know, the yeah. uh, of those. So there's a tendency for the sort of gestalt to talk about those things. You yeah. know, when you say when you look at the broader market, there's better values there. I mean, it's interesting because it, I was around in 2000. <laughs> I was thinking of a story that's kind of funny. It was one of the better calls I've ever made because I wrote it in the newspaper. Mm. And I, I, I wrote it on the date of the high of NASDAQ. Yeah. And, you know, it was no serious, or it was serious, yeah. but it wasn't like sophisticated. It was simply off the top of my head, I think 3Com owned Palm Pilot. Yeah. Palm, oh. Pilot, Palm Pilot went public with a yeah. higher valuation than the parent <laughs> company. And so it was that, and I went, well, wait, <laughs> you know that. okay, yeah. now you're nuts. Now you're crazy here. <laughs> and, uh, but it does remind me a little bit of that with some of the, some of the uh, valuations through the tech space, or at least the charts look very similar. Uh, it looks so exponential. Uh, so, I mean, I'm a cautious person. I, I'm a risk control person. I'm getting older. I, sh I would recommend that go to my children also you know, control the risk. Uh, you don't have to be on every boat that leaves the dock. So uh, I'm just saying it, I'm just wondering from your perspective, are you have some of those worries or you think I'm just an old guy with some over overwrought concerns? Well, I was a young whippersnapper in the 2000 uh, meltdown, but I do remember it. Um, you know, you had Cisco. I mean, these mm -hmm. are really good companies. So you can have something like called good companies and bad stocks. And, uh, and so I think the seven... Uh, like Microsoft, great company, bad stock right now. Um, NVIDIA, good company, bad stock. And, and, and what I mean by that is, let, let's just take a look at, at NVIDIA or, you know, it's trading at 45 times sales. And so some Microsystem CEO, when it crashed and, and it was trading at 10 times, not 40, uh, he said, well, people, investors should have known that um, if you're going to invest at 10 times over 10 years, you have to pay out all of your revenue every year with assuming that there's, there's going to be no cost of goods. You don't have to pay any of your 35,000 employees. You don't have to pay income tax, which is illegal. Um, and you, you flow it all through to investors. And, and in the case of NVIDIA, they have to pay out 400% of their revenue. And, uh, and so, you know, I look at it and say, okay, let's put NVIDIA aside because I mean, maybe that's an air pocket, but let's look at Microsoft, uh, 12 and a half times sales. And uh, historically, over the last 10 years, they've been able to increase revenue by two and a half times. Really good, by the way, for a trillion dollar, trillion dollars of, of, of size of a company to deliver two and a half times revenue growth over 10 years is fantastic. But now the market's saying 12 and a half times, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's to get your money back. How is that going to work? And I haven't had anybody... Uh, give me an answer. If you can walk me through their capital program over the next years, uh, next 10 years, that's going to, to grow their revenue by 12 and a half times um, and show me where that capital is going, how is it going to do it? And so is it all going into AI and AI is going to be exponential growth, right? 
Um, I don't know. I, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't get it. Um, I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but can we just give that as a, a I, I know this is just sort of a broad brush, what you'd be advising individuals. You don't know their circumstances, so I appreciate that, or their age. So this is very broad brush, everyone. But I just, a flavor of what you're doing these days. So I I think most of our clients are retired or entering retirement, um, want to de-risk. And and they've made their money through their work, Mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur, being a professional, whatever the case may be. That's where you take the risk. Right. Yeah. You're going all in on yourself and your skill set. And that's the best, highest return on investment you're going to get is identifying the area that you're passionate about and that you're good at and the value you can contribute, the productivity that you can you can add. And people will pay top dollar for that. And so um, that's been monetized. And so how do you um, transition towards more of an income uh, approach and a conservative approach? And I'm also writing about that as well. And so the traditional way back with my parents or my parents' parents um, was, well, you retire and you you buy a ladder GIC and you can just, you know, fly down, like I mentioned, to Costa Rica and sip your margaritas and you're off to the races. And it's supplemented and provided your lifestyle requirements. That hasn't been the case with interest rates. Maybe now that rates have come back up again, but with inflation where it's at, probably not going to cut it. So what do you do? So it's forcing people into riskier sides of the market in the traditional 60-40. Um, and that hasn't worked either. If you look at the last uh, five years, um, a 60-40 portfolio has only been able to generate an annualized 3% return. And so stocks have done 7.5. So do you go all in on stocks and take risk? And so we're, we're agnostic about that. We're like, okay, what kind of rate of return do you need to meet your lifestyle? And most people need around a 6 or 7% in retirement. Um, like it was back in the old days. So how do you do that? And so we structured uh, almost like an all-weather type of portfolio um, that has been able to get that kind of return or close to that return despite the ups and downs. So like that latter GIC, a little bit more volatility. And we're doing that through uh, a little bit of waiting to cash, which is paying you 5%. Our bonds are down to 7 10% in a 60-40. So we're really underweight bonds. We're not buying the long duration risk um, and thankfully, that worked out well for us last year because we didn't lose any money in bonds while bondholders lost 15%. So you were told to be safe in the bonds, and you're like looking at your portfolio today, and you're still down 15%. Uh, that was not very good advice. Um, well, then your advisor says, well, that worked for the last 35 years. It'll work again. Well, I just told you about COVID. Maybe things have changed, and maybe it won't. So that's why our fixed income is down. Um, we are big into something called structured notes. I've written about them. Um, we like them. They're a hybrid between stocks and bonds. Um, they offer a level of predictability to your portfolio, and they offer some significant downside protection. And that's about 30 to 35%. So we replace our fixed income with structured notes, and they've been really good for our clients. Mm-hmm. And then the rest would be 40 to 50%, uh, 55%, a little bit of private equity, a little bit of uh, private assets and alternatives, and then some public markets. And, uh, you know, you have to have some exposure to that growth, some exposure to those big names in there, absolutely, even though they're trading at high levels. Maybe trim that back. Look at the value segments of the market. Look at some dividend stocks that are paying well. You know, the Canadian banks are looking really good. Uh, some of the U.S. banks have sold off. You're getting 6% dividends. Um, dividends have not participated with uh, with the growth segment. So maybe you look there. So that's about half your portfolio. And we find that that's worked really well 
sort of an alternative all weather 60 40 instead of that you know 40 percent. i don't know what you would call it but we call it a goals-based uh risk managed return well as i was just thinking here you've given us uh normally the expression is food for thought you've given us a banquet and yeah. uh, I, I so much appreciate you finding time and i would recommend that people can find you at m pelchier cio you know on twitter uh always a ton of good stuff to read i do it myself and enjoy it. Martin, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Time now for the quote of the week. And this is one that is really worth thinking about. It comes from Carl Sagan, probably the best known scientist of his era. I mean, he was an astronomer, a cosmetologist, astrophysicist, and and so much more. I mean, he started out at Harvard, went to Cornell, but here's, here's the deal. He published more than 600 scientific papers and articles, was the author or co-author, editor of more than 20 books. Well, I'm going to play a quote from him in the last interview that he gave. It was 1996, and he warns about the dangers that come when citizens cannot ask skeptical scientific questions of those in authority, even more so. He describes the entire scientific mindset, the approach as being asking skeptical, being skeptical and asking questions. Huge danger when that doesn't happen. Yet that's the world we're increasingly live in. Listen to this. There's two kinds of dangers. One is what I just talked about, that we've arranged a society based on science and technology in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. And this combustible mixture of ignorance and power sooner or later is going to blow up in our faces i mean who is running the science and technology in a democracy if the people don't know anything about it and the second reason that i'm i'm worried about this is that science is more than a body of knowledge it's a way of thinking a way of skeptically interrogating the universe with a fine understanding of human fallibility if if we are not able to ask skeptical questions, to interrogate those who tell us mm-hmm. that something is true, to be skeptical of those in authority, then we're up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious who comes ambling along. It, it's a thing that Jefferson lay great stress on. It wasn't enough, he said, to enshrine some rights in a, in a constitution or a bill of rights. The people had to be educated and they had to practice their skepticism and their education. Otherwise, we don't run the government. The government runs us. I think it's the most dangerous thing we're facing. As you know, if you're a regular listener to Money Talks, I've been outlining this for years. It's the encroaching censorship. But really, to not be able to ask questions, to shut down and censor experts who were questioning the pandemic approach. And it looks like they were right. But again, it's just dangerous. But I thought this is really coming from one of the foremost scientists of his generation saying the key is to be skeptical. The key is to be skeptical. We should invite it as well as inviting questions. (laughs) 
Let's bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. You can find him at ozbuzz.ca. You know, what a, what a show. We talk food, which, of course, is one of the essentials, you know, with inflation up 9.1%. And people are saying, I wish my rent would only go up that much. Or some, and landlords saying, I wish my costs would only go up, up that much. I mean, it's a difficult situation and one that I think we're going to hear so much more about. The, the whole housing, you know, situation. Uh, Ozzy, let's start with, uh, you know, it's a confusing market too. It's not a monolithic market when you go across the country, I mean, again, much like the food situation, but it's not a monolithic uh, situation. Well, that's uh, really came home when Terranet just came out on July 20th and Terranet is really part of the National Bank. So it's not a real estate organization. So it's, it's, the numbers are really relevant. And they have two kind of uh, assessments. One is sort of the year over year, and one is what happened the last four months. Well, in the last four months, Terranet shows that the home price increases in Calgary were 6%, Quebec City 5 Edmonton 1.3. Now, year over year, it's not quite as good, uh, particularly for Toronto and Vancouver, which are actually showing down by about the same amount between 4 and 6%. But anyways, it's, it's all over the place. And depending on where you live, uh, some of the, the, uh, the outlandish numbers like Lesbridge uh, is up 5% and then Sherbrooke is up 5% and then St. Catherine is down 14%. So it seems to almost like depending on where you live, uh, the, the markets are all over the place. I get more mail than ever, people wondering what's happening, how has it happened and why. Yeah, and as you say, you've got to start narrowing it down to, can you tell me which neighborhood you're wondering about? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's come yeah. to that. But the, the other side, of course, that's we're talking about housing purchases there. The other side is the rental market there. And uh, obviously, I'm not surprised there's, uh, you know, tenants are having a tough time. But landlords are also having a tough time when you see property tax increases, utility tax increases. And it's very tough if those gets passed on. Of course, there are... Uh, depending again on the region you're in, there are stipulations how much a landlord can raise uh, rents. But again, that that whole thing seems to be a bit of a mishmash. Well, and that's it. You know, you're right. I mean, uh, people saying, well, we don't have rent control. Well, actually, we do. We have a 2% limit of what a landlord can raise the rent for in BC. It's 2.5% in Ontario. And then there are various uh, situations where a landlord could uh, charge even more depending on their costs. Well, tenants in uh, 33 King Street in Toronto, they call themselves Dream Unlimited. Uh, they, um, I'm sorry, the York Southwestern uh, Tenant Union says that residents are protesting rent hikes. And what the protest is and what the union says is that um, we're going to be fighting these rent increases. Now, Ontario is known for that. I mean, in 2017, 300 tenants fought the Parkdale area in 12 buildings and went on strike for three months, like strike meaning we're not going to pay. And they won successful uh, reduction in rent rents. But in Hamilton, Ontario, the following year, they didn't. And so if you're a tenant, you have to be very careful uh, about uh, some of those out unanticipated uh, consequences. Well, one of the things I also worry about is that i appreciate that by the way i mean who is there a program in this country that's talked more about the kind of things that we're going into the variables that we're coming together to produce a huge problem for renters that is going to only be exacerbated i hope they hear me now 
But my point is, they don't seem to understand what fostered this. I, and this is just me, Ozzy. I don't, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm astounded when people talk about affordable housing, talk about the excess rents, and don't understand they're literally voting for the politicians that made that happen. That's what I find astounding. I'm, I understand completely if you're getting squeezed by rents. Of course you are. I've looked at some of them. I've looked at all of them that have been reported across the country. You are getting squeezed. It's after-tax dollars you're paying your rent with. But for good, goodness sakes, take 15 minutes and figure out why that has happened. And uh, I don't get the impression. I'm not, again, I'm not putting words in your mouth. That's me going on about that. But my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, but we're really putting a wedge between tenants and the landlords. Yeah. In Victoria, there's also a tenant union is, is being formed in, in May. And what their goal is to have collective bargaining between owners uh, that negotiate rental standards with the Building Tenant Association. <laughs> well, like I'm a, I'm a member of a lot of other councils and we can't get along on anything, but I'm quite sure we could not uh, come up with this. But the point is, you're right. I mean, it is difficult out there. We, we, we are saying we have 2.8% inflation and the husband goes home and says to his wife, how come we're eating beans again? She says, well, you bring in more money than I can afford to buy something else. So he goes to his boss, he says, boss, I need more money. Oh, he says, the government says it's 2.8%. Here's 2.8%. He goes yeah. home to his wife. She takes a frying pan and lets him have it. You know, yeah. It's, no, it's, 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 it's useless to think that because mortgage interest costs are up 30% year to date. Rents are in some areas are up 40%. Food is up, as you pointed out, 9.1%. And so the whole, everything that we're looking at, never mind just real estate prices, is becoming more difficult and, and strikes are the outcome. And we have more yeah. strikes than we've had in a long time. Well, my worry is this, is that, um, you know, you're going to get the problem is real. But just because you identify the problem, in this case, we're talking, you know, excessive or high rates, unaffordable rates. Uh, just because the problem was real does not justify every solution under the sun. And I'm going to come back to one you just mentioned quickly, rent control. That If it hadn't been a failure everywhere, it's been tried <clears throat> with some very unintended consequences, fine, we should discuss it. But you got to discuss it within the context of what we understand has been the outcome when it's been applied. Just look at our neighbors in the United States. There's actually 37 states that prohibit rent control laws because of the experiences they made. There's only New York, New Jersey, California, Oregon, and Maryland that who allow it. And sometimes rent control sounds good to tenants, but you could result in poor housing conditions. If I have no money to repair anything and I can't charge for it, well, the, the building gets dilapidated. Yeah. There also may be less available rental housing because the landlord says, you know, I'm having so many problems. I'm going to convert them into sales and I'm sell them as condos or I, have, I won't, don't want to buy a new building. Look, we talked two weeks ago about the building in Ontario where the HST made $60,000 cost per unit, and he decides not to build it. Why would I want to lose 20% before I go in? So there is some outcome that may be unintended consequences, and it's not really what tenants even want either. Yeah, and I just think they're going to exacerbate the problem if they go. My editorial a week ago was talking about making decisions out of emotion rather than research and facts. And uh, I think you, I, I'll be surprised, Ozzy, if we don't get some very bad solutions here that make the problem worse. But again, I'll come back to, you know, if this is impacting your life, first of all, I'm incredibly sympathetic. But secondly, find out about it. Do some research about it so we can get the right stuff together. Ozzy, we'll be talking a lot more about this because I say I think this is going to be the feature, like literally maybe the most important 
issue in the country as we go forward because uh, population growth without an increase in supply is not a good formula for reducing rents or even stabilizing rents. In the meantime, they can get much more information by going to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, thanks again for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. And uh, on a lighter note, I just want to let you know, I grew up with uh, six brothers, and, and that's how I learned how to dance, uh, <laughs> waiting for the bathroom. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk. I've got Victor Adair waiting for me. Vic, uh, first of all, nice to see you. Nice to have you with us. I want to talk about something, you know, because I was talking to Martin Pelletier earlier, just about the extremes in the tech side of things or certain tech stocks and not the whole market, as you've been pointing out for ages, you know, but that tech sector, boy, it's reminding me of the year 2000 a little bit. And uh, I just wanted to get your take on it. Well, it's probably reminding you of the year 2000 because we've had such a tremendous run. I think the the NASDAQ is up uh, certainly over 50% from last October's lows. And we we came into the year, by the way, and sort of almost all of the analysts expected we were going to have to struggle this year. You know, the inflation, the Fed putting interest rates up and recession is going to happen and so on. So the market has run way ahead of most analysts' expectation. It's been led by the Magnificent Seven. But, Mike, I got to tell you, we had this this really (laughs) like this sign, (laughs) you know, uh, on Tuesday, like in the middle of the day, kind of out of nowhere. Microsoft announced they're going to start to bill corporations for their employees using AI. Within one hour, the share price of Microsoft jumped $18 to new all-time highs, and that increase was worth $100 billion of market cap. Back up just for a sec. So they announced that they're going to bill companies whose employees use AI, yeah, correct? Uh, use Microsoft AI. AI right? Yeah. So wow. somebody finally came out and said, here's how we're going to make a buck off of AI. And the market wet their pants. You know, no way we yeah. went. Yeah. <laughs> so now the thing is, $100 billion is a big number to you and me. I mean, yeah. uh, but for Microsoft, that was about a 4% increase in their uh, uh, overall market cap. But it did take it the market to new all-time highs. With Microsoft going up, a lot of other tech stocks were going up as well. It's like, away we go. And I'm sitting there looking at that, and I'm thinking, this is the cherry on top right here. You know, I look, I for, I look for extremes, and I thought, okay, yeah. this thing has been run to the upside, run to the upside. Maybe this is it, but, but. Being the risk manager, I said, hold your horses. Don't do anything today. Just, you know, let's see how this goes. And the next day, NASDAQ traded a little bit higher, then started the breakdown from there. I shorted it after the close on Wednesday. Tesla and Netflix came out with disappointing quarterly reports. And the NASDAQ has weakened since then. Now, it's just the NAS, okay? The Dow, the Dow Jones Industrial Index, has been up nine of the last 10 days or something like that. And I think we had our highest weekly close in the Dow since January of last year. So you got this rotation in the market, different parts of the market are doing this and that, but the hottest hot sector has been tech. And it seemed like maybe we had a little faltering this week. 
Yeah, one thing I want to emphasize in what Victor has just been saying, and he says he looked for confirmation after that. He didn't just jump. He didn't, you know, the emotion of the moment or not his emotion, but the market's emotion of the moment that he was reading. But I, I just want to emphasize that what, that's what a professional does. He says, okay, uh, let's wait. Let's see if and confirm what I'm thinking is happening on this. Okay, Vic, I want to go somewhere else about extremes. I was just talking to Martin Peltier, as you know, uh, he said he's as bullish on oil as he's ever been. But why? Because the market's bearish on oil. Oh, well, I, I could back him up on that. I mean, I, I know this. I've been looking at crude oil. We have a thing called the commitment of traders data. Basically shows us, like if you're sitting at a poker table, you'd be able to walk around the back of everybody and look at their hands, okay? So you want to see what they're holding. So large speculators in the WTI futures market have their lowest or smallest net long position in crude that they've had in years. So, I mean, like last year in the broad market, equities, I should say energy, was the hottest sector. This year, it's been the dog. So, yeah, if he's looking for extremes, that we definitely got uh, data to show you that you're at an extreme uh, low enthusiasm point for, for uh, crude oil, especially. Well, you've put a smile on my face, but you're going to be busy this week because you've got more cent central bank meetings coming up and the world seems to revolve about what they've got to say in terms of interest rates and those kind of things. So yeah, I, I, you're not going to get a relaxing week, I don't think. Yeah, we keep having these event risks. Now, I've been used to this since, I don't know, the, the 70s. We used to everybody to hang around the, the printer on Thursday afternoon to see what money supply was going to be. Uh, I think these people, we don't even print it anymore. But yeah, there's the Fed's on Wednesday, the ECB's on Thursday, and the Bank of Japan's on Friday. Um, you know, my take, I'll, I'll spit it out. I think this is the sort of thing people want to hear. Uh, I, I don't think we're going back to 2%. You know, I just I think, you know, the, the inflation is going to stay higher, the, the central banks are going to stay higher for longer as a result. And that's kind of the, my fundamental uh, macro background when I'm looking at any of the markets. Well, we'll get a chance to go further into that, but you don't have to wait. You can go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Take advantage of it. Vic's doing the work for you seven days, 24-7, and puts up what he finds. I think it's great stuff, victoradare.ca. Stay with us. So I've got a goofy award. Victor, I'm going to wade into the markets of economics. Oh, my gosh, is he nuts. It's oh. a big-time goofy. Oh, my golly. Time now for this week's Goofy Award, and I'm going to start by saying, you know what, I get a bit confused. I don't know if our politicians are really that unsophisticated about economics, or they assume we are. Anyways, case in point, June's inflation number comes in at 2.8%. Finance Minister Christia Freeland tweets and quotes, Canada's plan to bring down inflation is working. Well, why not create, take credit for Canada's plan to push inflation up was also working? Because I'll tell you, the government had a lot to do with higher cost of living, higher inflation numbers by indiscriminately spending during the pandemic. With the majority of the money, and they borrowed literally tens of billions of dollars, but the vast majority went to people who had not suffered financially. Finance Minister Bill Morneau summed it up by stating in quotes, government expenditures as a portion of GDP were made in the shortest time since the advent of the Second World War. 
Calculations and recommendations from the Ministry of Finance were basically disregarded in in favor of winning a popularity contest. So they flooded the system with money. In fact, Canada's money supply went up 27%. But here's a key. It was at a time of supply shortages. Same time, Bank of Canada pushed borrowing rates to record lows. What did they think would happen other than higher costs, higher than, you know, inflation rates going up? Because that's a surefire recipe. But they also added on, by the way, later after they had been doing that, we, of course, had sanctions on Russia. Well, instead of increasing supply, which would have kept energy prices down, they restricted supply, for goodness sakes. Energy prices went up, oil and gas. And, of course, that ripples through the rest of the economy. Now, look, I'm not saying Minister Freeland did anything different than all sorts of other politicians who have a tendency to take credit where no credit's due. But, you know, my big worry is they actually don't understand what drives inflation. That's why all the way through they said, no, inflation, if we get a bump, will be transitory. Well, obviously it couldn't be. You can't increase the money supply by 27%, push record low interest rates, and then have a supply, you know, win a supply shortage. It was always going up. But there's more. Right now, the federal government is bringing in about 2 million people over three years. Bank of Canada's Tim Nacklin says that's inflationary. And boy, you're going to really feel it on the rents. The federal budget, it outlines $8.3 billion in new spending this year, $51 billion in new spending over the subsequent four years. That will put upward infla- uh, pressure on inflation. I mean, anytime you borrow and spend the money, it's going to have inflation uh, as a repercussion. The only one uh, policy I can see from the federal government that is actually reverses the inflation number is increased taxes. But every other thing I've seen has been inflationary. You know, the problem is, though, of course, there is over half of Canadians feeling a direct impact from the policies that were put in place. And now the policies that are in place to reverse the inflationary pressures. And those are the ones I don't want to overlook at any given time. It's a tough time for a lot of Canadians. But please, don't put a red cape in front of a bull by saying you want to take some credit then inflation's finally come down. The rate of increase in costs have come down. We'll see how long that lasts. That's all the time we've got this week. I want to just say, hey, look, I really appreciate when you listen and appreciate it very much when you recommend Money Talks to other people. Uh, recommend maybe go to Money Talks tweets, uh, go to Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, and, of course, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. I'm still big on this. The more people know, the more uh, opinions they get exposed to, the facts and the figures, the better off we'll all be when it comes to decision-making. In the meantime, go out and have a terrific week. 